Hey, creep. I want to tell you a tale, if you're ready to hear it. It may not be pleasant. It may not end the way you want it to. But this story is gripping and as fascinating as it is shockingly horrifying. Are you ready? My name's Cole, and you're listening to Tales. The year was 1981 when Michelle Knight was born in Cleveland, Ohio. When Michelle was a little girl, she dreamed of becoming a firefighter, but as she got older, she aspired to be a veterinarian. She wanted to help people. She wanted to make the world a kinder and safer place. Unfortunately, the world wasn't so kind in return. Michelle was only four foot seven, which earned her the nickname Shorty, and Michelle was severely bullied in high school. At only 17 years old, she had been assaulted several times while at school. Michelle dropped out shortly after becoming pregnant and eventually gave birth to a baby boy she named Joey. But when Joey, Michelle's son, was only a toddler, an injury caused by an abusive boyfriend led to social services removing Joey from her care. On August 23, 2002, Michelle Knight was visiting her cousin's home, but when she left that evening, life took an even bigger turn for the worst. Michelle was approached by a vehicle. The driver slowed as he pulled up beside Michelle, unrolled the window, and offered her a ride. Michelle, knowing the man's daughter, felt comfortable approaching the window of the vehicle, but wasn't too interested in accepting a ride. That is, until the man driving said he had a puppy. A puppy which he would love to give Michelle, which in turn she could give to her son once she got him back from social services. Michelle loved the idea and was enthusiastic to get to the driver's home, where she could then be given the puppy and go home with a new friend for her son when he returned home. Michelle arrived at the home which sat on 2207 Seymour Avenue in Cleveland, Ohio. She clicked the seatbelt off of herself, stepped out of the vehicle, and followed the man into his home, but tragically did not leave shortly after with her new dog. Instead, she'd be restrained and imprisoned within the home. Shortly after Michelle's disappearance, her family went to police and reported her missing. But her loved one soon came to believe that Michelle, so devastated, so distraught over losing custody of her son and unable to cope with the never-ending stream of hard turns life threw at her day after day, well, they believed Michelle had simply run away. Although her mother continued posting missing persons flyers and looking for her daughter, her family removed her from the FBI's missing persons database in 2003. Not even one year after the disappearance of Michelle Knight, another girl in Cleveland went missing. Amanda Berry was 16 when she disappeared the day before her 17th birthday. On April 21st, Amanda woke up not knowing how horribly the day would unfold for her. She considered taking the day off from work to get an early start on her birthday celebration, but after thinking it over and feeling the weight of responsibility, decided against calling in sick to her job at Burger King. That night after her shift ended, though, as she walked home from work, 
along Lorraine Avenue in Cleveland, Ohio, the same street Michelle Knight had been kidnapped a year ago when a car pulled up. The driver of the vehicle unrolled the window and waved Amanda Berry over, getting her attention, much like someone you know would flag you down in the street to catch up. Amanda, like Michelle, recognized the man knowing one of his daughters, and like Michelle accepted the ride home that was being offered to her. Amanda got in the car and settled into the passenger seat as the driver asked her if she'd like a ride home, or instead would she like to come over and hang out with his daughter. Amanda liked the idea and agreed to come back to his home to see his daughter and hang out for the evening. The ride was normal. They made small talk much like you or I would have with a familiar parental figure in our teens, passing the time it took for them to get back to 2207 Seymour Avenue. Finally, they arrived, and like Michelle Knight a year before, Amanda undid her seatbelt, opened the car door, and followed the driver into his home. When Amanda got into the home, the bathroom door was shut. The driver suggested his daughter was taking a bath. That's when the evening, the scenario Amanda Berry now found herself in, made its claws and fangs apparent for her to see. The driver, the man, her friend's father, led her through the house, and peering through a crack in the door, she saw another girl, one she didn't recognize in the room laying there. This didn't seem right to Amanda, but before she could rationalize or quantify what was happening, the man chained her to a radiator with a five-foot-long chain, but not before brutally molesting and raping 16-year-old Amanda. Taping up her ankles and putting a helmet on her head, Amanda, in shock and stunned with the brutality and callousness of this trusted adult, this father of a friend having just raped her, was told if she was quiet and good, he'd eventually take her home. But it wouldn't be long until she realized, much like this kindly offer of a ride home, that the promise of returning home was a lie. Luana Miller, Amanda Berry's mother, quickly reported her missing when her 16-year-old daughter didn't return home after work and spent what should have been a celebratory day with her daughter, instead frantically looking for her. Another year passed, a year of captivity for Amanda Berry, and a second year locked away inside 2207 Seymour Avenue for Michelle Knight, with no promise or hope of being released for either of the girls when their captor decided he wanted to add a third girl to his collection. Amanda and Michelle locked up, confined to their tiny terrible worlds apart from the reality you and I know, watched as their prison guard, their captor, left the home on Seymour Avenue on April 2nd, 2004. The sound of the car engine starting was muffled and hidden behind loud radios that constantly blared music to hide Amanda and Michelle's screams for help from anyone passing by. Gina De Jesus was at a payphone just five blocks from where Michelle and then a year later Amanda Berry had been abducted. She had put a quarter in and dialed the metallic keys, feeling them softly punch in and click out. She was calling a friend to ask if they could sleep over. 
Gina de Jesus stood at the payphone with the hard plastic of the handset pressed against her ear, waiting anxiously to hear if her friend would be able to spend the night. She could hear her friend and her mother going back and forth, bickering, and then pleading, and finally Gina received her answer. No. Gina, feeling dejected and disappointed her friend wouldn't be spending the night, said goodbye and hung up the phone, hearing the finality of the quarter depositing into the metallic coin box as the handset was put back in place, before turning and walking home. Gina didn't need to walk home, but much of her life revolved around the act of walking. I can imagine it gave her some level of meditation or comfort, as most habitual acts do. She had been given $1.25 to take the bus home by her mother that day, but decided to save the money for gum and snacks instead. She walked 40 blocks to school every day through commercial and run-down areas of Cleveland. Another few blocks was nothing to her. That's when the car pulled up beside Gina. The driver of the vehicle slowed as he pulled up to Gina before pressing the brakes a little harder and bringing the lunging vehicle to a stuttered stop. And like he had done for the last two years, the man, who Gina de Jesus knew as the friend of a father, offered her a ride home. She too was brought back to 2207 Seymour Avenue and kept prisoner alongside Michelle Knight and Amanda Berry for years. We've been taught stranger danger, but what about trusting those you do know? What about trusting a friend's father? How is it possible to discern a safe situation or a caring act of being offered a ride home from a malicious attempt to kidnap and abduct you? I wish I knew the answer. I wish there was a sixth sense beyond a tingling on the back of your neck or an easily dismissible moment of paranoia. But there isn't. There is no evil detector. Teenagers can't read body language. They aren't prepared to be deceived by a parental figure. And there is no way society could function if we weren't able to extend a base level of trust to those we know, those we assume are playing by the same set of guidelines and rules. This wasn't Amanda or Michelle or Gina's fault. They weren't hitchhiking and getting into the car of a stranger. They knew this man. On May 6, 2013, after nearly a decade of captivity, Amanda Berry saw her opportunity. She was unchained and the man was gone. Her heart started thumping in her chest, pounding at the inside of her ribs, pushing her forward with every beat. She ran to the door and tried to open it, but the door was locked. Her breathing ragged and heavy as she knew she needed to escape now, or she'd never be able to be free. She pounded the door with her fists and screamed till her throat was raw. At the same time as Amanda Berry ran to the door, pounding it and trying to wrench it open, a man, Charles Ramsey, eating McDonald's, came walking down the street and could hear her desperate screams for help. Charles approached the door hesitant, but eager to help, or at least see what the commotion was about. As he stepped onto the porch, Charles could hear Amanda pleading to let her out. Please help. I've been in here such a long time. 
Charles Ramsey pulled the door but couldn't get it open either. Feeling her panic and desperation, he began to kick and kick and kick at the bottom of the door till Amanda Berry was able to crawl out, screaming at the man, My name is Amanda Berry. Call 911. Amanda Berry wasn't alone. She had carried out with her a small girl, her daughter. A decade had passed since Michelle Knight was abducted, and now that Amanda had escaped and had successfully found Charles Ramsey to help her and call police, now the events of the last decade were coming to light. Time did not stop in the private world of Michelle, Amanda, and Gina. Time was slow and painful, but it didn't stop. Life was happening all around them. They were growing up and becoming women under the most unimaginable circumstances, and their parents, who had never stopped searching for them, were growing old and weary. Prosecutors later wrote that diaries kept by the women spoke of forced sexual conduct, of being locked in dark rooms, of anticipating the next session of abuse, of the dreams of someday escaping and being reunited with their family, of being chained to a wall, of being held like a prisoner of war, of missing lives they once enjoyed, of emotional abuse, of his threats to kill, of being treated like an animal, of continuous abuse, and of desiring freedom. Following Amanda Berry's brave and daring escape, police responded to the home on Seymour Avenue. Police entered the home, guns drawn, as they methodically made their way through the home and up the stairs. Michelle Knight and Gina DeJesus were hesitant to respond to the calls and sounds of the police, but after peeking out from a cracked door, Michelle enthusiastically fell into the arms of police, exclaiming, You've saved me. And shortly after, Gina stepped out of another room, feeling the final relief 
knowing the police would bring an end to the years of her captivity. Michelle would later tell police that she had been impregnated at least five times that she could recall, and each time had been beaten, hit with dumbbells, punched or starved until she had miscarriages. These beatings were so vicious and brutal that Michelle Knight's grandmother told reporters she'd require facial reconstruction surgery due to the beatings. During a period of her captivity, Michelle was allowed to keep a pet dog. But when the dog attacked Michelle's captor, protecting her from his abuse, the dog had its neck snapped right in front of her. After Michelle, Gina, and Amanda were sent to the hospital and received proper care, police would come to find out more about Amanda Berry's daughter. In 2006, on Christmas Day, while she should have been with her family celebrating and enjoying the holiday, Michelle Knight was ordered to assist in the birth of Amanda's child. Unlike when Michelle had previously been impregnated, Amanda was to have this baby, and if the baby were to be harmed or not be delivered successfully, Michelle was told her life would be snuffed out. Amanda was placed in a small inflatable swimming pool, unable to go to the hospital, with Michelle Knight acting as a midwife, helping Amanda through the childbirth. Amanda breathed heavy and pushed, eager to meet her new daughter, a spotlight in the dark reality she lived, and finally gave birth to a baby girl, the same girl Amanda had pushed through the opening in the door before making her own escape. During the years of their captivity, the three girls bonded by their imprisonment were able to watch TV, including their very own episode of America's Most Wanted. They watched as their parents cried. They watched as they fought tooth and nail to have their girls return home, never giving up in their search. While surreal and otherworldly, this uncomfortable moment gave Amanda and Gina hope to cling to. Unfortunately, everyone still thought Michelle had run away. No one knew she had been abducted, the precursor to Amanda and Gina. Out of the three girls, Amanda Berry especially loved TV. She loved the escapism the TV provided her in those trying and terrible years. Amanda had always loved to watch Sylvia Brown, a psychic that appeared on the Montel Williams show fairly frequently, and through the years of captivity believed that only if her mother could ask Sylvia where she was, then perhaps she'd be saved. Perhaps she could go home. Eventually, Amanda Berry's mother did get the opportunity, and Amanda watched on eagerly to see her hope pay off. But when Amanda's mother asked Sylvia where was Amanda, Sylvia Brown, with her psychic powers, answered Amanda was dead. Can you imagine that creep? You sit locked away in a home, not your home, someone else's home, a home that's become your world. The real world, the world beyond the walls of your home, think that you're dead. You now sit a lost soul in purgatory, unable to live and experience life, and not yet dead. Watching others speak about you on TV as if you've already passed on. The idea of that gives me a sense of unease and makes me question the reality of life and death. If you're alive but no one is around to see it, are you even alive or are you dead? It sounds silly, it sounds ridiculous, and maybe I've worded it poorly, but it's just like asking if a tree falls in the woods and no one's around to hear it, does it actually make a sound? 
All thanks to the bravery of Amanda Berry, on May 6, 2013, Ariel Castro was arrested and charged on four counts of kidnapping and three counts of rape. Ariel's bond was set to $2 million per kidnapping charge, bringing the total sum of his bond to $8 million. On June 12th, Ariel Castro pleaded not guilty to the charges, which had now ballooned to 329 charges, including two counts of aggravated murder for his termination of Michelle Knight's pregnancies. On July 12th, the charges against Ariel Castro grew once more to reflect the absolute evil of what he had done. In total, there were 977 counts. 512 of those counts were kidnapping. 446 counts of rape, 7 counts of gross sexual imposition, 6 of felonious assault, 3 of child endangerment, 2 of aggravated murder, and 1 of possession of criminal tools. On July 17th, Ariel Castro once again pleaded not guilty. But on July 26, as part of a plea deal, Ariel Castro pleaded guilty to 937 of the 977 charges against him. At his sentencing on August 1st, Castro couldn't help but spew nonsense when asked to make a statement addressing the court for nearly 20 minutes. Ariel claimed to be a good person, not a monster in fact, his problem was his addiction to sex and pornography, and having started masturbating too young in life. He claimed the sex was consensual and that he never beat or hurt the women. Then he blamed the FBI for failing to catch him sooner. Michelle, Gina, and Amanda also had their turn to speak. Their address to Castro in the court was much more eloquent and well-spoken. You took 11 years of my life away. I spent 11 years in hell. Now your hell is just beginning. I will overcome all that has happened, but you will face hell for eternity. I will live on, and you will die a little every day as you think of the 11 years of atrocities that you inflicted on us. I can forgive you, but I will never forget. But sadly, justice was short-lived, as is often the case, my creepy friends. One month into his 1,000-year sentence, at the age of 53, Ariel Castro was found dead in his cell, having hung himself from a bedsheet. And the house which Amanda, Michelle, and Gina were held captive in for a decade as part of the plea agreement was torn down on August 7, 2013. Gina de Jesus's aunt began the demolition with the swing of a crane, while Michelle passed around yellow balloons, while telling all those who watched that those balloons represented the children still missing. Finally, the box which had held three beautiful, promising young women for so long was gone, and much like Ariel Castro, and for good reason, erased from our world. So, Creep, that brings us to the end of our tale. If you enjoyed today's story, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. They are so incredibly important in increasing the audience and getting these stories out. And more importantly, 
Every single five-star review gets me one step closer to getting out of my mother's basement. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, all at Tales by Cole. This episode was written and narrated by myself, Cole Weavers, and production and editing by Matt Black. And remember, creeps, take care of one another, stay safe, and don't forget to lock the door. (laughs) 